Let's turn back to the portion we've read, Acts chapter 2, to center our attention, particularly in the words at the end of this chapter, from 41 to 47. <laughs> then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. First part of this chapter that we have read deals with the events of the day of Pentecost. And you are all well away, well familiar with those. And then we have an explanation given of these events in Peter's beautiful sermon, Christ-centered sermon. And from the explanation, he moves on to the effects of Pentecost upon the church. He gives us a beautiful little cameo of the spirit-filled church. And in doing so, he is setting before us what the church ought to be, what she should be aspiring to be in every age. And we notice four features of that spirit-filled church in this portion we have before us today. The first is that they had a deep appetite for the word of God. Notice how you get that in verse 40, 42, the very beginning of it. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The word continued there as they persevered in the apostles' doctrine. And then a second feature is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship of the gospel. You see that in the same sentence. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And that included the breaking of bread and prayers. And then thirdly, we notice that this was a spiritually prosperous church. Because it says that the verse 46 uh, the very end, verse 47, I should say, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And uh, fourthly, another feature we notice, uh, I forget which verse it is, but you can see it yourselves, fear came upon every soul. These four features of the Spirit-filled church that we want to look at today, and especially the first two, the um, appetite for the truth, 
the devotion to the gospel fellowship, and then more briefly, the spiritual prosperity of the church and uh, the fear that came upon every soul and in that order. First then, the appetite for the truth. They had a strong appetite for the word of God, for the apostolic teaching. But as I've already noticed it, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, the word doctrine there is the sense of teaching. You find it in Matthew, Matthew 27, I think. They were all filled with, with amazement. I'm paraphrasing. Amazement at his doctrine because he taught with authority. Amazement at the doctrine, he taught with authority. It's the teaching that the, that the doctrine refers to. And uh, it's teaching that Christ has given to them. It's not teaching of, it's not something of their own invention that they have. It's teaching that Christ has given to the apostles that he gives, that they in turn give to the church of their own day. That must always be the case. Christ had been preparing his apostles, his disciples, all the time he was with them, the three years he was with them, training them for the day when he would be taken away from them and they would in turn be his sent ones to preach the word. It was a word that the doctrine and the teaching and the example that he had set before them and given to them that they were in turn to give to their own generation. Now, that must be the case with us still today. We, don't, no, long, we no longer have apostles. The day of the apostles has, has finished. We have ministers of the gospel. But the ministers of the gospel must nevertheless preach, as we, we, we often speak of it, we, they, they are... They are they are, in the, they are in the apostolic succession. And you might have wondered at times, at times when, a, when a minister is being ordained to the ministry, you'll find the hands of the minister, the minister placed upon his head. And that's speaking of that he continues in the apostle, apostolic succession. But when we speak of the apostolic succession, it's not going uh, an apostolic succession going back person by person, right back to Peter and John and James and the apostles. It's, it's not that. It's the apostolic succession, the same doctrine that was given to the apostles that ministers of the gospel are to preach today. They are to be in the apostolic succession in that sense. And uh, that is what's meant by the laying on of hands at the time of an ordination. That's what... Paul meant when he spoke to Peter, neglect not the gift of God. And the gift of God was the commissioning to preach the gospel. Notice it's a gift, it's a command, it's a gift to preach the gospel. Neglect not the gift that is given to you by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. 
And the same with ministers of today. They are in the apostolic succession in that sense. They are to be teaching, as you read in the uh, letter to the Ephesians, uh, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were, they were, they were, they were teaching on the basis of the, the, the foundation that is in Christ. And it's a Christ-centered doctrine that they taught. It's a Christ-centered doctrine that must be taught still today. That's the laying on of hands. That must be the teaching that's there. The teaching that the ministers of today are to give is the teaching that's in the, in the scriptures, the teaching that was given to the apostles themselves that we find now in the epistles of the New Testament, which the apostles in general wrote. And that's the way it has to be in, in the church, in the spirit-filled church. The word that was given to the apostles by Christ the same word, still in the epistles today, to be taught by present-day ministers who are in the, that apostolic succession. And there's to be that a, a very there's to be a, a close relationship, as there was a close relationship between the apostles and the congregation that they had that they taught. And notice there was a congregation of three thousand souls that they had to teach. 3,000 souls converted on that day of Pentecost, and they had to be taught. And um, as there was a close relationship between minister, between apostle and congregation, so there must be similar still between minister and congregation in our day. It's a wonderful thing when uh, souls are converted under the preaching of the word, and the minister can, minister has been instrumental, he's been the instrument used by God to that end, and he can speak of his converted ones as his sons and daughters. He has been a father to them in the sense that he's been the instrument that God used towards their conversion. A close relationship it's to be something similar in the relationship between congregation and minister as that between a mother bird and her chickens in her nest. The mother bird is to be foraging for food for the, for the, for the, for the, for the nestlings. The, she has to gather marshals for them. And uh, they, in turn, have to be ready to accept and to receive these marshals. And you've all seen pictures of little birds in the nest and the mother bird coming with the worm to them and their beaks are wide open, ready to receive, a ready appetite. That's the way it must be between minister and congregation. He forages in the word. He forages that he might have a portion from the Lord himself to bring to his congregation. And the congregation have to have a ready appetite to receive that engrafted word from his hands. And they must be bearing and upholding one another. The minister must be upholding the congregation that they should have that appetite, that they should have that wholesomeness in their relationship to the truth, 
and they in turn must be upholding their ministers. That as he forages in the word, that the Lord will be guiding them into portions suitable that would be food to their souls. Well, that's the first thing we have with the apostolic church. There was that appetite, a voracious appetite for the word of God, for the teaching of Christ. And what was there then, it's the pattern that should be there still today. Notice second feature that we have here is they devoted themselves to the fellowship of the gospel. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Now, what do we mean by fellowship of the gospel? Often today, we think of it in terms of just uh, talking uh, with one another uh, in a house about things pertaining to the gospel. And that, of course, is true. That is, when it is wholesomely done, that is uh, fellowship. But there's more to fellowship than just that. There's, first of all, a sharing together. That word fellowship has that sense in it. A sharing together. Sharing together of what? A share, not just a cup of tea. A sharing together of those things that the Lord himself has given to us. No, that's very wide, isn't it? We looked at the psalm at the beginning, to be my heritage for a, or they, my heart rejoice. We remember the words of Psalm 16, spoken by David. God is of our inheritance and cup the portion. It's a Trinitarian aspect to the portion to the inheritance of the people that they are to share together. All in Christ. All our portion should be in a lost eternity, but all he has purchased at great cost and set before us. Oh, what a rich portion. And we are to share together in that rich portion. Fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit once at the moment of regeneration, the spirit comes into the life of that soul, that believing soul. And the spirit leads him into the knowledge of Christ. He always points to, the, to not to himself, but to the word, to Christ, who is the word made flesh, the word incarnate. And in Christ, he points him to the Father. For example, in the promises of the word, it's through the word that the spirit operates. Through the promises, particular promises and in particular providences, he leads us uh, to the faithfulness of the one who has promised. And the sweet, most sweet, the sweet, the sweet mercy that's, that, is, that is enfolded within the, within the promises. He leads us into an experimental understanding of the grace of God in Christ. 
He leads us into a, an experimental understanding in our different providences of the Father who makes all things work together for good to those who love him. He brings us into a fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Isn't that what John tells us in his apostles? Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. This is a wide area that we could spend time on, but it's the fellowship in God himself. The fellowship in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he reveals himself in the truth, in particular providences to his people. And as they are led by the Spirit into a realization of these things, there must be prayer, of course, towards it, that the how does Peter, how does Paul how does Paul put it in the Ephesians that the their minds would be enlightened in the knowledge of these spiritual things. We have, we, we're told about them in, in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, and then he comes to prayer that we should be enlightened into those things that are revealed there. And when we are dependent upon the Spirit, we come to a realization of the portion, the rich portion that belongs to the Lord's people in Christ. And they are to share together. They are to encourage one another there. They are to exalt one another there. They are to have fellowship there in the sharing together of these glorious things and glorious truths. Another aspect of fellowship is, <clears throat> that, was, that was one aspect, sharing together. Another aspect is to be generously contributing to the cause of Christ. The word, the word for fellowship in the Greek is koinonos. And um, there is a word, a, a derivative of that, koinonum, I think it is. And it speaks of the meaning is generous, generosity. So that this word fellowship has to do with generosity. And uh, there's to be a generosity of giving to the cause of Christ. Minding yourselves that there are those just as there was the uh, in the beginning of the, the apostolic church, the Jerusalem church was the poor one, was temp physically in temporal terms, it was poor. And the, 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 the gospel went to the Gentiles, they were rich, and they, it was their duty to uphold with, with the collections the church in Jerusalem. Generous giving to the cause. There is a wee bit of difficulty here when we come to consider the generosity of giving that is required because it says, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. That was the generosity that was there in the apostolic church. And the question therefore arises there, is that to be the universal? Is that to be the universal uh, practice of uh, having all things common and selling what we have and sharing together? And I think we've got to notice there that um, even in the apostolic church, 
it was it was put forward it was put forward as something to aspire towards but even there it wasn't universal because it says in verse 46 and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread and notice from house to house so there were those among them who kept their own houses So it wasn't completely universal. You find the same thing in Acts chapter 5, uh, dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, they were, their sin was not greed. Their sin was deceit. It wasn't just that they had with... Uh, they, 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 it was Peter said it would have been right enough for them to keep that which was their own. Their sin, however, was one of deceit. So it wasn't even universal there. Nevertheless, the principle remains generous giving to the cause. Sacrificial giving to the cause is required of all believers. Seeking to uphold those in temporal need, those in the midst of persecution, seeking to uphold the missionary church as it goes forth, seeking to uphold the efforts to translate scripture into every language and tongue so that the word of God can go forth to every portion of the earth. That is a portion of the fellowship that they were engaged in. And there's a third aspect to fellowship that comes out in this portion that we're looking at, and that is the wholesome relationship that existed between the believers. It's implicit in the words that you find um, in verses 46, breaking bread from house to house. That is the shared meals together. And I'm sure they wouldn't just be stylish meals. Maybe salt herring and as at one time in the past, and potatoes, but sharing together what they had and upholding and having a good relationship with one another, eating their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, whatever the Lord gave them in his providence, sharing together. And that is another element of this fellowship that the church must, of our day must seek to aspire towards, the sharing together in the things of God, the generous contribution to the cause, and the wholesome relationship that ought to be cultivated between each and every member. Being mindful of those who are lonely, being mindful of those who are housebound, being mindful of those who are young, being mindful of the needs, being mind seeking to go before them in realizing what the difficulties are that they have and seeking to strengthen and uphold one another. That it could be said of them as was said of the church in the past, behold how they love one another. Well, that's a second aspect of this spirit-filled church. And then more briefly, two points spiritual prosperity of that church. 
the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now that will only, of course, take place as the Spirit is poured out upon us and as we realize the Spirit's presence uh, in the same ways that we've been trying to speak about. The spiritual, spirit, spiritual outpouring upon the church of that blessing. And we hear that so often amongst the brethren. And it's a truth. It's a spirit alone that profiteth. There is no profit in the flesh. And therefore we should be praying we, well, the Spirit is present, of course, with every believer from the moment of regeneration. But the, what we're speaking of here is the, 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 the enriching presence, the, pre, the, 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 the experimental enriching presence of the Spirit. For that we need prayers, that we would realize the enriching power of that Spirit through the truth to lift up the church, to, to bring that revival that only he can bring. It's the Spirit alone that profiteth, and there must be prayer to that, towards that end. It's a great need of the church of our day, the outpouring of the Spirit. But remember, that prayer must be accompanied with Activity must be must it not just a mouthing of words. That prayer must be backed up with example, for example, with what we've just been speaking of, the wholesome relationship that must exist between the brethren and the sisterhood <coughs> in Christ, and the, the attempt to, to cultivate that uh, fellowship. If we're really praying, that must be backed up with such evidences. It's easy enough to say it's a spirit, and then to say it in such a way as to absolve ourselves from all responsibility. But if we're praying meaningfully, there must be that responsibility that we enter into also. It's not because of our prayer that the spirit will come, but it's in our prayer and it's in our in our in, in, in our cultivating such a spirit within a congregation that the spirit generally is poured out upon us. Oh, he can come sovereignly, but nevertheless, this is a responsibility that's laid upon us and is required. And finally, a fourth feature, fear came upon every soul. And that fear, a godly fear, a fear of bringing, a fear of offending against, a fear of offending against anything that would be pertain to the glory of the name of Christ, a realization of what's in my own heart, the deceitful, the deceitfulness that is with myself, already. How readily I can fall, I'm prone to, to bring, to bring, to being, being neglectful, 
of that cause. And therefore, a prayer that I should be kept, that I should be kept alert, spiritually alert, that there should be a sentry, as it were, at the door of my heart, crying out who goes there when there's an attempt to intrude sinful thoughts into my heart. That there should be a sentry to keep me from covetousness. And so on. Fear came upon every soul. Desire for the glory and honor of his name. The church was marked with that. And as I understand the scripture here. That fear stretched beyond just the believing church. The professing church. That fear extended to the unchurched. I think we can remember all of us something of that in a day that's gone by. One example of it was the midweek meeting. Such was the respect towards the church and the cause of Christ in our communities in our past day that when the midweek meeting, when the time for the midweek meeting came, a Wednesday 7.30 or whatever time it was, not only the people of God came home from the peaks of that what they were engaged in at the time, but the whole community, out of respect, ceased from these labors at that time as well. There was a fear that came upon the whole community in a sense, in, in some measure. Oh, how it is gone. Oh, how we should seek prayerfully that that should be returned. Oh, how we should be wrestling with the Lord in prayer that he would do for us. And that our prayers, as I said, would be backed up with action to show the reality of our requests. Let us pray. It is thy spirit alone that profiteth. We acknowledge that even as we realize the promise that thy word will not return to thee void, but it must bring forth that which thou dost please. Oh, that our prayers to that effect then, even this morning, would not just be a mouthing of words but that we would be enabled to truly desire and to truly show forth a desire for the glory and honor of thy name in every respect that falls to our hands and to our responsibility and accountability. While acknowledging thy sovereignty, that we would never forget the responsibility that lies towards us within that sphere. Take away iniquity. Love us freely. Forgive our iniquities for Jesus' sake. Amen.